0: Welcome back to Get to the Good Part. This is Chris. And this is Aaron. And this week we are tackling chapter 26, which, unlike other keys and other gates, starts off with, I figured it out later that night, where he starts to go into his experience with the piece of aluminum foil. That accompanied the key, surrounded, wrapped the key. So he's pulling out this piece of aluminum foil. He scans it into the system. He scans both sides. He enhances, <laughs> evens out all the creases. Have, have you ever heard of a more boring thing to do? I, I just, I, I'm imagining in my mind just this intricate, highly detailed piece of bubblegum wrapper that's been smoothed out flat. With even all the creases smoothed out flat and just going, hmm. If <laughs> anything anything so boring, as just to watch this piece of aluminum foil or aluminum paper. Yeah. Uh, I like the fact uh... that he's eating corn chips at the time. So his hands are busy. <laughs> he's eating a lot of corn chips in this book. Uh, you know, had there been decent product placement, not like we need any more 80s references. But he could have thrown in some, some, some references to the kinds of corn chips being eaten, like, mmm, these Frito Lay's, wink, wink." You know, we're he, delicious.
1: The thing is, though, I mean, he's he's a big name Gunter now. He can afford maybe a piece of fruit.
0: <laughs> yeah, and you know what? Though it, the problem is, is that if he gets fat on corn chips, and I'm not fat shaming here because I'm a big boy myself, but if he gets fat on corn chips. The machine that he's that he's he's operating in, will punish him. Yes. So eating corn chips while trying to figure out this piece of aluminum paper uh, or foil paper is doing him no good.
1: The thing that came to mind was that, given the state of affairs in the country, corn is probably the most readily available and cheapest
0: of the grains, right? So this is his version of apples.
1: Yeah, this might be like the what's the most accessible staple to the masses is corn and corn based foods.
0: I could see it, you know, after the wheat riots of, uh, 2027 and, um, and the invasion of foreigners from the South, I can already feel like I'm going to cut this out, (laughs) bringing their corn chips in as a, as a mainstay, uh, or maybe, um, you know Taco Bell rules over all the fast food during the fast food wars. Taco Bell won out and cord chips became the staple snack food, kind of like in uh um uh, in demolition man we
1: we need our taco shells so
0: did you eat did, did you watch demolition man
1: uh I think so long time ago
0: that's the one where where um Sylvester Stallone is makes a mistake and he's frozen in time and they put him through like this. Uh, training program, the subconscious training program to make him a better person and the bad guy gets out and unleashes a bunch of other bad guys. It's like way in the future. Whenever he goes to the bathroom, he doesn't know how to use the shells. Uh, then no, I did not see that. And they go to like this really fancy restaurant and it's Taco Bell. And he's like, really? Taco Bell? And like, yeah, during the fast food wars, Taco Bell's the one that won out. So Taco Bell's out this like ritzy fast, is with this ritzy restaurant. Anyhow, all right. Not fucking relevant. Not fucking relevant. Because right now we're studying foil paper,
1: and I'd have to say, let's f- dig into this one.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know, right? Let's uh, let's let's fold into the intricacies of this foil paper. I felt like of all the solvings, I was least on board with this one, and I think the reason why was I didn't feel like I was solving it with him. I felt like he was saying, "Ah, figure it out," and then circling back around and telling me how he figured it out. Whereas in the earlier ones, I felt like I was trying to figure it out with him and that it was just like one step to the next, to the next. And then when it hit him, it hit me as well. But here he's going through and saying, and it was then that it hit me. So he's like looking at the foil, he's saying, I'm going to, you know, I imagined folding it into a paper airplane and sailing it across the room, which I did with aluminum foil. By the way, aluminum foil makes for a crappy paper airplane. Well, yeah, I would think so. But I did like using it to cover cars. I don't know if you ever did this or not, but did you ever have like, fuck, I'd have Hot Wheels cars. But I wanted to destroy my Hot Wheels cars in exotic accidents, but I didn't want to destroy my Hot Wheels car. So what I did was I took aluminum foil and I cut out a square piece and then I would mold it around the outside of my car so that it would look just like like a pressed f- version of my car. Okay. And then my, aluminum, then my aluminum foil cars could get into accidents and they'd like crash and contort into all sorts of shapes and shit. It was really, anyhow, it was fun. I got to smash my cars and then I would, you know, smooth it out, reshape it. And I have my car again.
1: And then you analyze the folds in your crumpled up piece of aluminum foil because that's a fun <laughs> thing to do.
0: And, and as I was crashing my cars with my aluminum foil, then it hit me. <laughs> Origami folding fucking aluminum and it it hits parsifal in this way so i'm gonna be honest with you like i went back watched the movie a week ago and this is the first time i've seen the entire movie from beginning to end and i'd seen a lot of pieces so i understood the general plot but i did have a lot of details that were missing but the folding of the unicorn or the folding of any origami animals in the movie was not so stand out that i think this would have hit me
1: well let's just remember that he's watched that movie four dozen times. (laughs) I'm sorry, over four dozen times. And it was referenced in the Almanac, no less than 14 times. This is why I was so annoyed with him in the previous chapter, because if you've seen it that many times and it's mentioned in the Almanac, so many goddamn times, how did you forget? How did you not arrive
0: there? And it's in his top 10 movies. Yeah. So it's not like you had to read very far. If you're going down the list of hundreds of movies and if it's in his top 10, like you'd, you'd literally hit somewhere between one and 10 before a test and foil might pop out at you. So that, that I, that I could understand, like, why wouldn't this be a no brainer? And I, and I get that we're telling a story here. But then to come back and go, duh, it'd be so obvious. And of course, we're sitting back going, duh, it should have been so obvious. You should have been able to reference this. In retrospect, it's easy to think that, for me, at least.
1: I can see how everyday life, you're trying to solve a problem. And sometimes the easiest solution is the hardest one to arrive at, because you're just expecting a level of difficulty that's just so far beyond the obvious, you you can't get there. And I think that has to be what's happening with him
0: and with Artemis. So you're saying he reached a place where he might have overlooked the obvious.
1: Yeah, I think he was overthinking it. He's examining the wrapper like the answers there. Like he's looking at the at the micro and not the macro. It's not like there's gonna you know be that that crazy fold in the paper that then says, ah, there we go. But it's the paper itself. It's the double sided paper. It's the aluminum kind of look on one side and the white dull paper on the other. And that that's that's the message. He got caught in the weeds on this one.
0: Right. And I and I get that. Like it's it's easy to get caught up in expecting the complicated And overlooking the simple answer, like maybe it's too simple. You're expecting something to be rooted at a much deeper level. And in fact, it's coming off at a much more surface level to the point where you're smacking your forehead going, why isn't this the first thing that hit my mind rather than the last? Well, I mean, obvious why it's the last, but, you know, so much further down the road that you, you circle back around and go, why didn't I get to this sooner? Why wasn't, it, why wasn't this obvious to me?
1: When you look back at it, this was probably the f- first or second easiest clue
0: that we've seen so far. Right. So Gaff, the character in the movie that is the sort of unwilling police sidekick. Yeah. He really doesn't do shit in the movie. He just shows up, looks at him with strange eyes, and occasionally folds and drops an origami animal somewhere in the scene. And he folds several origami animals. I don't think that unicorns were necessarily like, he's folding unicorns everywhere. He had different animals that he folded. So why do you think that in the book, the unicorn is the special creature here?
1: I think because it's from the last scene, and I'll take the book's word on it, that it is very iconic. I think partly due to the fact that it is the last scene. And I don't know there's just something mystical about the unicorn that I think makes it appropriate for something like the Easter egg hunt. What were the other the other image the other um, origamis used in the movie, at least in the version that you were watching?
0: I don't remember. I remember that they were just general animals. I thought there was like a horse one. I thought there were a few of them.
1: Uh, there was, for the, I think the, the first one he makes is like that little matchstick man.
0: Yes. Yes. I remember that. Yeah. I guess that would be harder to wrap around a key, huh? Yeah. <laughs> okay. So I can kind of see that. I, I can I can definitely see that because the, the unicorn was in the movie. I think it was focused more specifically. Like everything else was incidental. But in that last scene, it was meant to be or was meant to communicate that Gaff had been there, that he too could have taken out the replicant, yeah. but that he chose not to. So do
1: you know about the alternative interpretation of that?
0: No, uh-uh.
1: Okay. Um, this is very interesting. Which version of the movie did you watch? Did you see the uh, final cut? <laughs> <type? laughs> the director's cut?
0: I don't know I don't think so. I got the final version that I got was the one that was for rent on Amazon. okay,
1: so I think so that's the I don't final remember it cut.
0: being i don't i don't I don't remember it being the final cut so I, I don't know tell me what what tell me what you're gonna say and I'll see if it
1: in the version that you watched were the were there's were there these very short kind of pseudo dream sequences with an actual galloping unicorn?
0: No, no, I don't think so. No, no, not at all. No.
1: Okay, so apparently this was added in the director's cut and the final cut version of the movie. So there are scenes where the it's it's kind of like cut so that it it appears like uh, Deckard is having a dream sequence of a unicorn, which seems very strange when you're watching. It's like, well, what the fuck is this? And the interpretation that I think was the original intent. Of Ridley Scott was that when you see the unicorn at the end of the movie, it ties back to those dreams. It's signifying that the unicorn dream was an implanted dream into Deckard. Thus, he is a replicant.
0: (gasps) Oh, interesting. Yeah. Okay. That's interesting. All right.
1: It's pretty cool. That's, there's a whole lot of like if you really do some digging online, you can you you can read people's bullet points on the on the theories behind it and it is pretty interesting. And then you you read about like what Ridley Scott's intent was and his intent always was that Deckard was a replicant. And
0: mm-hmm. there's
1: even more stuff that I was reading right before we started recording that was like, "Oh, holy shit, this is getting really deep." You know what that the scene where He's giving Rachel the, the void comp test. Yeah. So he asks her a lot of questions about animals or whatever, and she's just kind of, like, very quickly answering them or whatever. But she's also asking him questions. She
0: asked Interesting.
1: Her, she's asking him, she asked him, like, three different questions, I think. So she, she first asked him if uh, she asked, do you like our owl? Right. He just kind of asked, like, kinda like, oh, is it artificial? And then she asks him, have you ever retired a human by mistake?
0: I remember that part. Right.
1: And then she asks, is this testing whether I'm a replicant or a lesbian, Mr. Deckard? But like yeah. every time he responds, he's very kind of robotic, right? Just kind of to the point. And it's like, huh, I thought that was interesting. I, I, I had first discovered that today and I'm going to have to read up on that more. And, uh, uh, see where that goes.
0: Hmm. We can dig more into that a little bit later. Okay. Uh, so the Voicomp machine, because we 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 get to this place where Parzival immediately recognizes after it hits him what he needs to do and where he needs to go, and the Voicomp machine is the place where the test is to be taken, or at least it's the device that allows them to take the test. So he you know gets in his ship the Vonnegut, and shoots straight to a world where he knows that there's hundreds of this pyramid, you know, the, the Tyrell building. Which is a it's fucking cool-looking building. I, I will give it. For the time, it was incredibly impressive as far as the scale and the machinations. It was in, completely impractical. Okay. <laughs> when, you look, when you look at, like, elevators going up the side of a slanted building— It's just, you know, but but still super cool looking, super gargantuous. You know, you you look at the the room that you end up taking the test and a couple of the other rooms. And my initial thinking is, where the fuck is the rest of the rooms in this building? This has got to be operating like this gargantuous build business structure. You know what I mean?
1: Yeah. It's like, and I bet no one can find the fucking closet there too.
0: It kind of reminds me of like the pyramids. Like the pyramids are huge, but the rooms within the pyramids are not. They don't fill out the pyramid as a structure. They're just a handful of rooms and some fucking tunnels.
1: Yeah, I think it's like mostly tunnel to get to these uh, the the rooms in the pyramid. But but most of
0: it's just stone, just stone that's set there to kind of encompass it all, right?
1: One of the things that kind of popped in my head as I was watching this that there was some part of the architecture in the I guess it was the Terrell building, but I think it was also in Deckard's apartment. That kind of reminded me of the Alien movies. There was some very kind of Geiger esque looking stuff there, and not to mention the fact that you're talking about the architecture of the Terrell building, just a huge scale, much like the same scale that was like all, like the complex in like the Alien movies
0: right the the Geiger to me looks is very deep and complex and it has like holes and ridges but it's also very curved yeah and around it so you have this complexity but it has these sort of natural curves almost like they were machined
1: it was organic
0: yeah both organic and mechanical whereas everything that I saw in the movie felt very angularly machined but but, but similarly architected and equally dark yeah
1: it, it was very yeah, very dark tone movie. I don't think you ever saw sunlight, right?
0: Right, no. It was always no.
1: artificial light.
0: Yeah, it was a very sort of gritty, you know, Chinatown, downtown, deep, deep in the recesses of a downtown. There aren't any streets per se, there's just lots of back alleys that happen to allow cars to go through. And it just had that, that sort of nuance to it that I thought was kind of cool. But here we have the Tyrell building, and this this comes with the World Builder. And the World Builder is the first instance really in the book that we start to talk about how how the Oasis could possibly be built by individuals or maybe by private companies who either buy I could see buying land. That that could be a thing, and then basically copying and pasting these iconic buildings into the world. And the Tyrell building being so huge. And because of which, because it's so detailed, so iconic, I could totally see it being put into this this copy-and-paste template world builder, which is really how this then angles in. Because every instance in this book where you can go after a key or go after the gate, there's multiple instances of this place where anyone can go. And this final stepping stone of multiple instances is thousands of buildings because it is a template spread across hundreds of worlds. So it lends to this sort of private finding that he can basically hope to find any building, any any planet that has this building on it that was used as a template and use the default password to get in, which likely would be the case because you would just simply drag and drop and boom, you've got your building, move on to the next building. So I thought, that's pretty cool. You know, build it into the world builder. But if you had to put any buildings into the world builder, like if you expected templates to be in the world builder for you to build out your world and make it easy for you, what kind of iconic buildings would you stick in there as a template?
1: Let's see. Iconic buildings. I think just because they, it pulls on my heartstrings a lot, I do like the Ghostbusters headquarters.
0: Oh, I was just thinking that.
1: Yeah. I think I might want to... P- I think I would probably go with probably the uh, the clock tower from Back to the Future, just right, so I could right. like read, so I could just do that. That'd be awesome. One that I just kind of thought of for the world builder, but also would be good for um, for my version of Falco, would be Spaceball City,
0: like the whole city,
1: the whole city, because it was just like this big bubble on like
0: it was encompassed in a giant city bubble. was kind of like
1: this, it was kind of like these yeah. bubbles on like a planetscape thing with the with the Capitol dome on top of the big bubble
0: oh that's cheesiest shit okay that's cute i could i could totally but that's some fucking lazy shit right there that's like something that they're like we need to make a city and we're going to call it it's going to be spaceballs city well that makes sense because all the buildings will just be balls you know as a kid if you're making a diorama this is the easiest fucking sci-fi landscape to make because you just go to the store and find various sized foam balls I I don't remember this at all from the movie. (laughs) I think that if I was to do like a a single building, I'd almost need like a cityscape in order to create a scenery. So for me, ideally, like I like the Ghostbusters. So I would have the Ghostbusters firehouse. I mean, Ghostbusters headquarters, right? Yeah. And then I would have the the apartment building that. Oh, that Dana lives in. That, that Dana lived in their first client, the one that paid them up front for their services uh, it, I would have that. Maybe the church that's next door. So for me, it's kind of like if I wanted templates, I wouldn't just want one building. It would need to be like those sets that you buy for Christmas that you set out across the mantle. Yeah, the various... I was say,
1: you're basically building a, a, a the Ghostbusters set. Yeah, and yeah. I, I'm not. I, I'm not knocking it. That sounds awesome.
0: I'm with you as far as the Ghostbusters fire hall or the the, the Ghostbusters headquarters. Yeah, is the first thing that came to mind. God, I'm trying to think if there's anything different because just both of us coming up with the same damn thing is it's boring as fuck.
1: What, what about putting the Sears Tower in there so you can go up to the way top with like Ferris Bueller and look down? No?
0: Okay. Throw a little Ferris Bueller in there. Or, you know, you could have the town from Back to the Future. You'd have the school. You'd have his house. You know, you could rec- you'd have the, the, the malt, mal- malted milk shop yeah. that they go to. You, you could do the entire town, not just the clock building.
1: And you could do the you could do the same town and then like you go across the border and then you're you're in the nineteen fifty five version or you're in the eight, 1985 version or the two thousand fifteen version actually you don't really right. see the town in in two thousand uh, and nineteen eighty five all that much
0: i could I could see a planet that has multiple versions of the different time periods for The same town that is back to the future spread out across the entire planet.
1: This is kind of getting me like excited for the idea of ever doing this, and yet I know it's just not (laughs) going to happen.
0: And you walk through a gate, and then it takes you to another place on the planet that is another time period for that town. You walk through another gate, and it takes you back to the Wild Wild West, which is where that, you know, was the town, right?
1: Yeah, or you could just skip that one.
0: (laughs) (laughs) You weren't a fan of of that. You weren't a fan of that. It, It was the. Come on, the train, the flying. The flying train was cool. Yeah, but
1: everything else, but that movie was clearly uh, the it was the lesser of the movies.
0: You felt that that might have jumped the shark, like they ended it there for a good reason.
1: Yeah, it was it was done.
0: It was done. They had reached their they had reached their climax, I suppose. So he's going into the Tyrell building and he's fighting his way through replicants. Which, after having seen the movie now. That's fucking tricky. Like, the replicants were intelligent. They were very quick-moving. They were hard to kill. That was the point, for a number of them at least. But he's burning through replicants. He's killing all the NPCs. Particularly what I liked here was, I think that this is the first mention where he says that he never ran out of ammunition because bullets teleported into the bottom of his clip.
1: Yeah, can I interject a point right here? Sure. This, above all the things, bothers me the most about this book and really any book, that refers to it as a clip. It is not a clip. It is a magazine.
0: Okay, so if we, uh, if we go back to the magical uh, Wikipedias, it says a clip can reference a device that is used to store multiple rounds of ammunition together as a unit ready for insertion into the magazine or cylinder of a firearm. This speeds up the process of loading and reloading the firearm as several rounds can be loaded at once rather than one round being loaded at a time. So a, a magazine could potentially contain the bullets. The, I'm sorry, a clip would contain the bullets. The magazine is the thing that you load the bullets into. Correct. So that, them calling this a clip makes, I think this, well, I, so what, did they call this a magazine or a clip? What did I miss here? He calls it a clip. Okay, so technically the clip is the thing that holds the bullets that you then use to load into the magazine.
1: Your run-of-the-mill handgun, you're going to manually load the magazine. It's going to have like a spring-loaded kind of right. thing, and you just kind of push them all in, or you can use a loader, but they're generally individual. You you'd buy like a box of ammunition, and then you insert right, them right. manually.
0: I've, I've really never made the distinction before, so I have an SKS. And there are there are clips that you can buy that hold the ammunition, but they themselves are not the magazine. They're meant to speed load magazines. So the magazine you could load one at a time, but a clip is used to quick load bullets into a magazine. Is how it's house defining. So for him to say that it kept loading into the clip, you'd be like, well, that would be a waste of time because I don't want it in my clip. Damn it, I want it in the magazine. If you stick exactly. it in my clip, then I've got to take the clip and load that into my magazine. And you know that's that's okay. I get what you're saying. That would be irritating.
1: It is irritating.
0: It does definitely show uh, a little bit of inexperience. You know, it. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it reminds me of it reminds me of the movie Shaun of the Dead. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. When when they, when he's talking about you know loading loading bullets, is that they're not bullets, they're shells. Call them shells. Yeah. <laughs> you need to load more shells. <laughs> it's like, All right. Uh Yeah, yep, so I, that, I that right. is a fair point. Yes, it is. It is it's just it's that interesting technical nuance there, particularly like in video game culture, where even even people who play video games would get that shit right. Yeah. OK, now I wonder, because oftentimes I'll give an example, a magazine is something that is, relatively speaking, permanently attached to a gun. No. Well, I mean, like, well, it's it's a it's something that on into the gun. the gun. I don't yeah. know. I've I've often you know when I think clips, particularly when I'm talking about like pistols, for example, you you always see in in the movies where they just hit the spring and the and the, the magazine pops out. It empty. slides out like it's nothing, and then they grab right. another one, and, and then pop they it back in, pop it back in. But that's that's really just a pistol sized magazine. Yeah. I, I wonder if there's some some walking room there, but we'll move on. We'll move on. We digress. Yeah. But he never runs out of ammo. How awesome and I is found that? that? This was. <laughs> I, how awesome, well, I'll tell you, that sounds expensive, but I get it. Like, that makes sense, right? Because if you had to charge for anything, you charge for the stuff that's that's like fuel and ammo, right? Those are the two things you might burn through really damn fast and not even think about it. But as he's going through and he's burning, and again, this is a gargantuous building. So the idea that he's having a ton of NPCs, I got to think of an entire pyramid, that covers kilometers of distance, pouring NPCs up through the elevators. I suppose, but I think he gets to a point where he shuts the door and he's finally in the testing room and he's alone with the void machine. And I did a little research on the void because my first thought was maybe what you know what does what do these words mean? Why did somebody think up these words? You came across something interesting. What, what was it that that you had come across there? I didn't come across much,
1: but. All I could find was that they're, I think they're both German words or German surnames. Mm-hmm. Kampf, like the, the book that Hitler wrote, Mein Kampf, which in English means my struggle. Kampf means struggle. Mm-hmm. Um, Voigt, I th- the best I could come up with was that it kind of means uh, like someone who's elected to something. I couldn't really get a very good, I couldn't get a a, a good meaning behind void. other than that.
0: Okay. You
1: know, I've also seen people just say that those are just the names of whoever created the, the test, which makes a lot of sense. So that would kind of mean the sur- that they mean surnames. and
0: Kind of like you have a study. You have a study with, with two, two peeps that were on the study, and then they, they kind of run their names together. Yeah, Because these two people kind of came up with this system. So, and we've uh, seen this. we've seen this. something like that before.
1: So, so, the name Voigt, as it was spelled in the original novel, if you look that up, you see that there is a German ser- sermon that may refer to a few different people Alexander Voigt, who is a German football player, Angela mm-hmm. Voigt, an East German long jumper, or Christian. John Voigt. John Voigt. The, the, he's Angelina possibly, Jolie's father. I'm not done yet. And the last one, Christian August Voigt, an Austrian anatomist.
0: Ooh, that's interesting. I don't know if there's a connection there. Yeah, but I just like think- the fact that what we're talking about is robots and yeah. somebody who would be intricate. And, and it's neat because the machine itself actually sort of magnifies the eyes to look at the pupils. It really kind of delves into the anatomy of the robots that are being questioned.
1: And as, uh, as Parsval mentions, the bellows, that makes it, gives it the sense that it's breathing.
0: And my understanding of the bellows is that it was taking in air samples from ah. chemicals produced by the body of the robot when it was answering the questions. So it's really this lie detector for robots, where you're asking questions and the response from the replicants determines whether or not they're telling the truth, whether or not they're replicants or not. Hmm. That's pretty. Uh, and it's not even like a true thing per se. Uh, some of the examples that I looked online, I thought this was really neat. Was that it's kind of like a cross between a, a a lying detector, and a Turing test. Are you familiar with what a Turing test yeah, is? Yeah, that's
1: the one that created by Alan Turing to see if it's mm-hmm. a artificial intelligence or not or something like that.
0: Well, he speculated the idea that artificial intelligence could be qualified as the ability or the inability to distinguish a conversation with a robot or, again, an artificial intelligence from another human. So the, the general concept here is that if there was a room and there was a door between you and another something, and you wrote a message and you passed it under the door. And then something wrote a message and a response passed it under the door back to you. Whether or not you could be fairly assured that this was or was not a human. And if a, an artificial intelligence or rather a, a robot of some sort could fool a human pretty well as far as conversation quality was concerned, then you could classify that robot as, as as intelligent, as having artificial intelligence. Now, we've come much further since then in classifying artificial intelligence, but I really like the idea that you have this lie detector machine, but the replicants aren't lying. The replicants might not even know they're replicants. So you are having a conversation with a robot and asking questions and watching responses for a way that would be different than how a real human would respond under the same circumstances. And that's just this neat mashup of lie detector slash Turing test that I thought was really kind of a, a cool way to approach it. Yeah. So when I dove deep into it, I thought that's a pretty fucking cool thing to to dig into.
1: Yeah. And then when you you know thinking about it in the in the way that the reason why uh, Rachel, it took her, uh, it took well, it took Decker to hunt like over a hundred questions to figure it out. The reason why it was because of the implanted memories.
0: Right. And that she was more complicated. She was a unicorn. Uh-huh. You know, she was more advanced. You know, she was more advanced than the rest of them. That it took that much longer. Because keep in mind, while she may have had memories, so did the other four that he went after. So the beginning of the movie opens up with Creepy Guy. I don't remember Creepy Guy's name, but Creepy Guy, you know, the one that gets a little bit triggered when you start talking about his mom.
1: Yeah. um, Creepy Guy.
0: It did not take, he had memories as well. He had pictures, but it did not take long to figure out that he was a replicant. Well,
1: is that really true? Or is it that he was just like, oh, Leon, right? Was that? Yeah, Leon. That's it. He just kind of said, fuck this shit and just shot the tester.
0: Yeah, it feels like that would be a dead giveaway, huh?
1: Yeah, it's like, I don't <laughs> think the tester found out. He was just... Dead. Just dead. Yeah. Oh, by the way, anybody uh, who hasn't watched Blade Runner, spoilers.
0: Uh, you know what? We are so <laughs> past spoiler t- territory at this point. Parzival gets in the elevator, makes it up to floor 440. Uh, floor 440. Now, we know that when you see numbers pop into existence in this book, it's almost never random like there is a rhyme and a reason even if it's small so we dug into it what did you end up coming up with as far as 440 is concerned
1: so the, the one that excited me the most was that 440 is an area code in ohio it's actually in like the greater cleveland area
0: right which right was, that was pretty right.
1: cool i was like oh look at that it does not seem to be the area code for either ashland or middleton or Columbus. They're all in slightly different geographies, or very different geographies, depending on how you look at it. The other thing that I noticed was when I was looking at the zip codes in the area, that uh, many of them begin with 4-4. Is that connected in any way? I don't know.
0: But it wouldn't be unusual. Like, yeah. He's had multiple references to Ohio. Almost like like every few chapters, there's a nod to Ohio in some way. So that's that's usually when I see something like that. It's not necessarily the first place I go, but it doesn't surprise me when something from Ohio pops up. So the fact that you found 440 as an area code in Ohio even though it's Cleveland, it might be a nod.
1: Yeah. He had to have gone to Cleveland at some point.
0: Sure. When I was when I was doing a little bit of research, what I ended up finding and and I I when I worked for a cigar company, they ended up branching off into cutlery. So 440 was kind of ringing in my head as as something else. And when I dug a little bit deeper, 440 is a kind of high-grade cutlery steel that has a little bit more carbon that allows for a better edge and better edge retention Ooh. when it's heat, when it's heat-treated. So this circling back around to Blade Runner this this reference to blade if you will that there's 440 steel and various grades of 440 steel that are used specifically for making blades and and swords and knives and things like that i don't know if if that's absolutely the connection here cuz i really like the area code concept but the fact that we're talking about blade Runner and four forty steel used to make blades. I kind of thought maybe, maybe that's what he's referencing here. I guess I guess we'll have to ask him at some point. But um There's also the A440 pitch. What's A four forty pitch?
1: Oh, so that's the um I think it's like the the standard pitch to that you use to tune an instrument. Okay. That just popped in my head. I really don't know if there's a connection there.
0: It's a thing. Okay. Now you got to tie that shit back. Okay, let me see if I can figure this out. All right. Okay. S- seven so. degrees of fucking Kevin Bacon here. All right. Okay, so A440,
1: also known as the Stuttgart pitch, uh-huh. serves as a general tuning standard for musical pitch. So let's see. How can we tie that back in here? Uh, he's going to the 440th floor. Not coming up with. Anything, although you could you could make a, some type of roundabout explanation for well tuning is to bring something kind of back into uh, equal uh, not equilibrium but you know back to proper function right right and this chapter kind of has Parzival coming back to being the Gunter that we know him to be from the earlier chapters like he's back to like. Yeah, you know, well, it was kind of the previous chapter, where actually not not really even last chapter he was given the, the um, he was given the answer to the clue. Now he's figured it out on his own, so he's back right. to being the problem solving Parsival that that we know and love. And a four forty pitch being a a, a tuning a, a musical instrument tuning uh, pitch is my guess at a roundabout way of tying in A440 with the 440th floor. Okay. And that could all uh, go on the cutting room floor.
0: <laughs> <laughs> uh, if I had to take a guess in the direction of A440, A440, known as the Stuttgart pitch, is a standardized tuning pitch, but it was originally used... Oh, hold on a second. No. no, it doesn't make any sense. I thought this... It was a, it was a pitch that was originally approved by the German Natural History Society. Um, again with the Germans, and maybe again with the German. Yeah, that that's kind of I. There's a German theme going on here. Uh, I don't know if this makes sense in the same meal. However, you know there is that thing. There's there's sort of a German thread going through here with the Voigtkampf Kampf. Uh, I, I don't know. Again, cutting room floor, quite possibly. We'll move on. Here we will we'll move, move on. on gladly. Yeah. Okay. So. We find ourselves after he jumps through the portal in Middletown lanes and it is a bowling alley. And like many bowling alleys in the eighty eight like many bowling alleys in the eighties, there is a game room. And and I can attest to this because in the late eighties and early nineties, I was a part of a bowling league. So after we got done playing bowling, we would go to the video game room that was this long, wide hallway filled with video games. And I have Vivid memories of dumping a crap ton of quarters into these machines. But I, you know what? I, I, that was the only time that I enjoyed video games a, as much as any time, really. i enjoyed it the most during that period of time. So I can kind of relate to this. this the, the lineup, the wall of video games along the wall. But he has pulled in to a very specific game called black tiger black Tiger was a capcom game and it was a side scroller and it was really you know during a time as we kind of researched and, and played with this during a time where side scrollers were were kind of all the rage i mean you talk about contra which was okay. a Konami game castlevania also a side scroller the graphics were getting a little bit better uh, you had a lot of jumping a lot of shooting you know you'd have that that chainmail that would lash out like a whip and hit something that was really cool so you had these series of games during this period of time, 1987-ish, where this this type of side-scrolling would come out. And in fact, I don't, I don't remember Black Tiger. I remember Contra. I remember Castlevania. I don't remember Black Tiger.
1: Yeah, me neither. So I I, never... I played a lot of fucking Contra back in the day. That game was awesome. It was. And I definitely played Castlevania. But yeah, I don't remember ever seeing Black Tiger or playing it. When I was watching some gameplay, the music did sound familiar to me, but that doesn't mean anything.
0: It's like every other eight bit yeah tune that's put on a loop, right? Yeah, it kind of changes whenever you come across a boss. Like you know, shit's about to go down when when that looped the looped audio of eight bit music starts to change up a bit, get a little bit more ominous in tone. So I had never played Black Tiger, so I watched some some gameplay through, and it reminded me very much of like Castlevania. And I can see just just watching it. I'm not going to say that the game is easy because no doubt there are parts of it that are difficult. But I could see why I might have never seen this in any video game hall that I had been to, which is that it doesn't look that hard. And for a place to make money, they want you to put a quarter in and then die in about two and a half to three minutes, <laughs> and then put another quarter in to continue. Whereas Black Tiger, yeah, that might take three hours to get through, I suppose. But just watching the game play through, I was like, this isn't bad. I could play this for twenty or thirty minutes maybe on one quarter. Yeah. Which kind of left me thinking, you know, what other games would have been crappy arcade games that wouldn't make you know, a guy running an arcade any money because it was just too freaking easy to play. Uh what what kind of game for you was something that on a single quarter you could go at length on?
1: Uh Single quarter.
0: Try, try not to put too much emphasis on <laughs> nothing.
1: There ain't nothing. None. I'm pretty sure. I'm pretty sure. If I had a hundred dollars worth of quarters, I couldn't. I still couldn't beat any game.
0: Really? Well, and I'm not talking beat. I'm just talking about something that you could play for hours, or maybe five minutes on a single quarter. If you're not very good at playing, well,
1: there are games that I could probably like squeak
0: up five minutes at a time. Sure. What game do you think you could play the longest? Ah, the longest. Okay, I'm going to make it even easier for you. Okay, make it easier. What game, even in dying, do you think that you would enjoy to play for a prolonged period? <laughs> Given an unlimited amount of time and quarters, what one game could you play for a period of time and go, damn, I really enjoyed that? Definitely not Joust.
1: <laughs> that gets a little redundant. Yeah. I'm trying to think of like other games that uh, we played up in Columbus because that's really the closest reference I have to games love that genre and ilk. Uh, I enjoyed Tempest. I could play that for a while.
0: I, you know, the first time I played that was about a month ago. I had not played Tempest before a month ago. I went to a local arcade here in Nashville and I was like, yeah, okay, I'll give Tempest a try. Oh my God. Did that just absolutely fuck with my patience? Truly. I, I, I like, I, how could you precisely control the little knob? Because you're just spinning a knob and hitting a button. Yeah. Spinning a knob, hitting a button. You're going around the side, spinning a knob and hitting a button.
1: It was a spinner, not a we- not a ball, right? Right. Yeah, okay. Right. Yeah, I thought the the uh, interface was a little bit bizarre, but I thought, you know, like in the five minutes that I got to play, that I, I felt it was a game that I could probably deal with. And by deal with, I mean, like, it's simple enough for me to understand because I'm. I don't. I don't like the really difficult games that you have to like really think about things and strategize too much, and you, it's a whole story, and you need a master's degree in gaming to solve. It's like no, I don't want any. Like I don't have enough time for that.
0: Okay, so you like you like something quick, relatively challenging but relatively mindless.
1: Yeah, I mean, like uh, I even got to play this that star the vector Star Wars game, which was. That was actually a lot of fun, too. And it was simple. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know, I think part of it is that maybe what I enjoy about it is because the graphics are so simple that my mind kind of takes over and creates its own thing out of it.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like softcore porn.
1: Exactly. That was exactly the thing I was thinking
0: of. (laughs) (laughs) You're like, I don't need to see you completely naked. I get the point. Yeah, yeah. I can't imagine it. You know, it's like those movies where you see the sheets and the bodies and you go, I know what's going on. That's star Wars for you. Yeah, exactly. Star Wars is softcore porn. I'd, I'd say star Wars, the, yeah, the star Wars video game is the, is the is soft core porn. In fact, I think we, God, I think we had this conversation a few episodes back.
1: We did. We were talking about, um, that Vector game, Vector the vector games and that battle game with the tanks um battle zone, right? Is that what it was called? Right right. And yeah, uh, and yeah. you were saying how you got completely immersed in it because you were just it gave you enough that you could draw the rest yourself.
0: Yeah, yeah. For for some reason it was incredibly entertaining. I could play it for hours. But now I look at it and I'm just uh you know, I'm I'm so burnt out on good you know, real, real solid graphics. You know, the stuff that's out there today I look at it and I just have such a hard time, Uh, you know, and now nostalgia for me doesn't last more than five minutes. I think like I'll walk up and I'll play and go, yeah, that's kind of what I remember. Okay. I've had enough now. Like I don't, I don't, I don't relish nostalgia very easily, very well. It's one of the reasons why I look at Star Wars pretty objectively and go, you know what? That first movie, episode four. Well, that kind of sucked. <laughs> it, was, really? it was all right. I mean, it was like it was like B level. Yeah, like I wasn't. Look at it. Go back and look at it today. I mean, seriously. Like compared to all the shit that we are crazy critical about that comes out today, and then immediately afterwards, watch that. Okay, it's like eating Doritos and then having like a plain corn chip. It's just it's it's you're just so overwhelmed. I suppose. And we've circled back to corn chips. Haven't we? We circled back to courtships. You're overwhelmed by the spice that you almost you can't taste it anymore. And and you, for me, when I look at, it, I just I don't have the same. I don't I don't do nostalgia very well in that regard. I suppose. But if so, there so
1: you're are... saying that you won you wouldn't want to go play Mario Brothers. You would you wouldn't buy the NES Classic and play some of those old games just for
0: fun. Nintendo wasn't my thing. I was a Sega guy. So a lot of those.
1: You wouldn't go buy go uh, you know, like a little mini Sega with all the games preloaded for that purpose?
0: No. Nope. No, I wouldn't. Like, if I've played some of the Sega games in the arcades from the old Sega stuff. But uh, no. No. I, 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 I enjoyed it then. It, it doesn't take me there. It doesn't take me there like some movies do. It doesn't take me there like music does. Music, for me, is a strong nostalgic connection. I can... My wife knows 80s and 90s music really well. I know when that music came out because I moved a lot as a kid and I can place a song to a year based on where I was when I heard the song. Hmm. So for me music connects me nostalgically to periods of time in my life. But the video games just don't quite do it for me. Like I'll go back to it and go well that was fun but it just, I don't know. I, I think I enjoy pinball machine games now way more than i did as a kid really i like as a machines kid don't do it for me it, they do it for me now i don't know what it is i don't know what it is maybe it's because it's of there's a physical element element involved i'm seeing a ball rolling around i'm smacking things there's more tactile involved i i don't know what it is because we don't live in the world where we interface with a lot of tactile stuff like our phone screens might fucking vibrate every once in a while but, and we have like a little bit of feedback in our joysticks these days, but really most of it is in screen. You're not getting a lot of tactile feedback, but with a pinball machine, there's lights blinking, there's various video displays going on. You've got these little chits that, that pop up that you hit them and they pop back down and you get certain points for it. It's just the layout. It's, it's, I don't know. I just, I like it a lot more now, whereas as a kid, I was way more into the video games now I find myself I could spend hours on pinball machines much more I think than the video games of yesteryears.
1: Uh, I will say that what impresses me the most about pinball machines is just the level of engineering in them. Oh yeah, they, like I, oh I, I, god, the last time I was at a like the uh, the new barcade that opened up uh, near near where I work, I walked by a couple of these things. I'm like, oh my god, these things are crazy.
0: And even the older ones. I mean, ones from 15 or 20 oh, years yeah. ago. I mean, which, they're,
1: they're I mean, unbelievable. They were really
0: complicated. And if you've ever seen like the tops pulled up and all of the intricate wiring and working underneath it, it's, uh, you know, I think video games of the 80s were programmatic uh, marvels. And definitely an engineering marvel in the sense that they made it so that everybody could get a hold of these video game systems. But pinball machines were like mechanical marvels that that complemented. They were the other side of that entertainment industry.
1: What I find amazing about those things is that it's not like the soft, like the software games that you can get today, where oh, there's a bug in the code, you just download a patch and it's fixed. To you know, to make thousands of these pinball machines, ship them all out, and then oh, well, we crossed a wire somewhere. Like that's not easy mm-hmm. to fix, right? So you kind of have to get it that was shit mechanical.
0: Right yeah or it would wear down,
1: so these things had to be basically they had to be done right and built to fucking last, and you had to transport these things physically across mm-hmm. large distances, yeah, they're kind of amazing pieces of machinery,
0: yeah, yeah, highly respectable i mean and again, I don't want to downplay the video game industry, but the pinball you know game industry is. It, like you said, there's a lot of physical elements that go into these things running right. You know, a video game system, you know, you had the screen and you had the buttons and the joystick. And the buttons and the joystick were the biggest interactors that you had to really deal with. Like if that went out, you could replace buttons, you could rewire the buttons, you could you know, deal with that. But the pinball machines had so much relying on mechanical systems. It's remarkable. It, it just, it truly is. There's so many points of mechanical failure in a pinball machine that could bugger with the game, that it was. it's impressive to play today. I don't even really think about it. I think I just, I enjoy it because there's so much going on that it grabs my attention more than a screen when it comes to going to an arcade. You know, if I had to imagine my basement, it would be like one side of the room, totally lined with pinball machines, and then maybe one universal arcade stand-up thing for the video games, like one cabinet.
1: And what would that cabinet be?
0: Well, that's a good question. Because if I had to spend hours playing a video game my favorite game as a kid was donkey kong now granted i'm no king of kong but you're also as a not kid, one for was, nostalgia when it comes uh, to video as games as a kid yeah well as a kid this is the game that i would play after school i would come and play this game for at least an hour or two and i'd get up to level i don't think i ever i don't think i ever broke level 40 but i could get up to 39 that was my highest without dying well, without having to restart the game, because you know how this worked. You know, you got a couple lives, a few lives. And then once you burned through those, you had to start over from the beginning. So I could get up to level 39. And I don't know what that equates to in points, because for me, I was really just concerned about levels. Fair enough. But it would be that, and then I would go and watch He-Man. Nice. Like, that was, that was my, my after-school regimen. It was that and He-Man. And I, and I had it timed out, too. So that would be, that would be my hours game. Like if the one game that I could pop a quarter into and probably spend hours playing as a kid, at least it would be that today it would be pinball machines. Okay. So, but a different question though, not just what video game would you play? Because for Parzival, when he goes in to play black tiger, black tiger is a side scroller. But when he goes in to play this in the gate, it's no longer a side scroller. It's 3d. He's in the game and he has to spend three hours and. It, And because of this, keeping in mind, and I didn't really think about this as far as like the movie stuff that they did, this is an action game. You're jumping, you're climbing on these pipes, you know, you're doing all of this activity. It's exhausting. That's a that's it's a three hour exercise regimen. Like it's a good thing he's been working out. It's a good thing
1: that he gets credit uh, and he can eat more food now that he's done all that exercise.
0: Yeah, he's got an unlimited supply of uh, corn chips. Exactly, he doesn't have to worry about doesn't have to worry about you know bulking out too horribly because he's going to play through this side scroller turned three D for three hours. Three hours of jumping and grabbing and whipping and shooting. And flinging knives.
1: what struck me about the, this was that, you know like at the, at the end, and he finishes the game and he reads the, all the developers' names, and it says, you know, "Oasis Port by uh, James Halliday." could you mm-hmm. imagine one person porting this one game from 2D to 3D? Like that's a, Not, that's
0: an effort in a VR sense. In a VR sense, that would be a freaking effort. Yeah, I, I believe so. And there are a lot of games that have been ported from a side-scroller to a three-dimensional aspect. So it's, it's doable. Usually have teams doing this sort of thing, but doable. Uh, but however, to do it in a VR realm where you're in it... That's got to be fucking hard. Yeah, because you know these games are linear in that there's really only one direction to go, to progress forward through the game, let's say. Because a lot of this shit's up, down, forward, whatever. But it, when you're in a 3D realm... You can move left and right, not just yeah, forward and back. But right.
1: he did say that to the left and to the right was just blackness, and that you had to move forward.
0: <sighs> oh, I see. So, so you—that's it, like it's like being on a ledge the entire fucking yeah, time.
1: Yeah, which has got to be a little unnerving, even if you, even if you're just wearing the uh, the glasses and or the visor. That to me would be very disorienting.
0: I'd have a hard time picturing it because all of these games have a background to the side scroll, you know. So, is it like? <laughs> Is it like to the right is blackness, to the left is the background, and in front of you are these blocks and and levels and pipes that you've got to grab onto to go through? Yeah,
1: and, and the th- and the other thing, they all make sense in the side scroll vantage point, but in three yeah. D looking at it might not make as much sense. Like, yeah, like the, there's I, a level of adaptation that goes beyond just kind of port, a simple porting. Like, you got to kind of redesign a lot of the game.
0: Did you ever watch the show Double Dare? Of course. On, on Nickelodeon.
1: Yeah. Everybody just went right to the, I, double, uh, to the physical challenge.
0: Right, right. So it reminds me of, of the, the obstacle course that they had to go through in Double Dare. Like, that was very linear, but it was still an obstacle course. Or maybe today there is Ninja Warrior mm so ninja warrior's kind of kind of an example, like a three d example of of, of a this side sort scroller of, yeah it's a three d yeah, it's a three d version of a side scroller, wouldn't you say does that sound about right?
1: right. yeah, but it was originally it was designed as a three dimensional environment, whereas this game was designed as a two d environment and mm-hmm. you're going in one direction so that like so how it would have to reimagine a lot of these different areas? As a 3D version and with more depth, and you know, like how do you like uh, from the gameplay? It looked like the the guy was like climbing up these kind of tubes. So how does he reimagine that in the 3D version? You know, is it a series of tubes I, I could... that you can climb on, or is he make it rope or instead? You know, like he's got a lot of decisions to make, and then he's got to program it, and he's got to do all the art and. I mean, like you've done developing, right? So you know how much goes into this kind of thing.
0: Oh, yeah. Yeah. It takes time. It takes time. So I could, I and I, I've not yet developed anything VR. So I'm excited maybe to do something like that. But yeah, I mean, it, it takes time because it's a lot of detail. But the flip of that is, is a lot of the games these days that are, for example, first person shooters, all could be done. In 3D, because technically speaking, the environment is rendered in a, in a sort of three-dimensional environment, even though you're seeing it as a one-dimensional perspective. And I say one-dimensional in the sense that it's not 3D when you're watched, looking at it on your monitor. It may look very real, but it is not. You don't have a depth perception that is three-dimensional. But you could because the game is designed that way. Uh, you could have an offset perspective within the game. And in fact, there are systems that allow you to view your video games in 3D if you've got the glasses and and uh, certain stuff to do it. It's rather cool. But if you had to turn any game from from 2D to 3D, what would that game be for you? Uh,
1: so if we're talking like turning... You know your you know some of these vintage side scrollers. Uh, we've already mentioned it, but uh, Contra would be one because cool. That, I remember playing that game a ton. I remember we had to actually borrow that. We didn't even own it. We borrowed that game from somebody, and I remember going to like friends' houses and playing that. I loved that game. I wanted to own it, but we didn't. That that was a. I really enjoyed that game, and that actually had some version of a first person pers- perspective in it for some of the the scenes i thought
0: did it okay yeah cuz i didn't it, get very far in contra
1: well like i think like between like the first level and like the kind of there was kind of this intermediate like level where you know you got like the third person view of your the guy whatever you know if he had a name or what and he was going forward through the space as opposed to side by side on the screen
0: Oh okay. Oh okay. Like going down a hallway. Yeah, you'd, yeah. You'd run to the right to duck behind a barrel. Exactly.
1: Something like that. Oh okay. So it it switched that, and that was that was awesome.
0: I think my game would be, and I've I've only played this once, but uh, some friends brought it over, and it felt like I played it for hours, at least until they left. But it was Metroid.
1: Oh fuck yeah, that game was awesome,
0: and I really really enjoyed that. Uh, just you know, it just kept digging down into the levels. And the, the the lower down you went, the creepier the bosses got, the more difficult the rooms. So you weren't just climbing down things or, or jumping over things. You were swimming through things. It was just really super cool. Yeah, that was, so, that was not a one-quarter game. No, <laughs> no, most certainly was not. But I really dug that. But as Parzival rounds his way out of Black Tiger and ends up popping out of the machine, finds himself staring down the credits of the game that he's just been th- spent three hours playing. What comes up after the credits, after the holiday the port, is one of the wise men that presents the opportunity to choose a giant robot. And it was at this point in the book that I felt like it had taken a, a weird and surprising turn. Like, I did not I did not expect this, and I wasn't 100% sure how this was going to play in. But if one thing was very real to me was the fact that if someone else had taken a robot, it was X'd out, and that there were over 100. And 100 is a lot. But when you think about how IOI was farming yes. and the potential risk that all 100 robots would be owned. So
1: I have the exact same comment. Why are there only eleven robots missing?
0: Well he says in the book, he assumes that IOI got to those first.
1: Well yeah. But they'd been farming the keys and they'd got they'd gotten that far. Why aren't they farming the robots to get rid of them so that no one else can get them?
0: That's a good question. What we do know is that out of the hundred over a hundred that were in there, Parzival picks picks Leopardon from Supidoman. And I went to see the videos of this because you know, I'm trying to envision why he would pick this, and of course, the videos have this sort of this. Uh, it's not animation per se. It's 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 this very physical uh, model that that sort of you know folds. It's Spider-Man driving around in his car, and then his car flies up into the air, docks with this larger device. I, I don't remember it was like Mega Dom, Mega something or other, and then that turns into the robot Mar- that mean, Mar- is Marveler. Thank you, Marveler. Like, that's hard to remember. And then changes into Leopardon. And then Leopardon has, like, missiles that can fire out. He can shoot his hands. Like, his fists can fire out and punch something at a distance. And, and like, SpaceX, the the, the, <laughs> the, the rocket fists fly back into the arms and it land where they were originally. I think that was kind of cool.
1: I think that was, that must have been Elon Musk's... In, um... Inspiration.
0: Elon Musk is watching those as a kid going, you know what? I'm going to do that with rockets. Yeah. Why can't we do... If fucking Man can do that with Leopardon, why can't we do that with rockets?
1: If you can do it with a fist, you can do it with a rocket. <laughs> uh,
0: it, I thought that was neat. Uh, of all the robots that could be chosen, and I'd be curious as to the full length. Like, really, was this the most popular, or was it just simply that he had... The most personal enjoyment from watching.
1: See, uh, it, I think the implication is that he had the personal connection with Leopardon. And I just thought that that was a weird thing to do when you're in a contest that's kind of like winner take all. And why wouldn't you really like? He starts off on the right path. He says, trying to find the one with the, with the best abilities, whatever. But no, he stops on Leopardon despite the fact that it may not be the most powerful.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. It's like being shown an arsenal of weaponry. You've got rocket launchers, you've got Uzis, machine guns, submachine guns, you know, lasers. It's like, you know what? I have a real soft spot in my heart for this 9mm over yeah, there. Yeah,
1: or you know what? The air rifle from A Christmas Story.
0: <laughs> air rifle from A Christmas Story. You'll shoot your eye out. By golly, that's how I'll defeat Sorrento. I'll shoot his eye out. What? Uh so it's it's interesting. I mean I don't necessarily know that Leopardon is a less powerful than the rest. It's just an interesting selection because oftentimes with a lot of the anime or a lot of these robots they have like hidden talents that aren't discussed for you know, or they're not discovered for additional episodes down the road. It's a bit like how Superman continues to discover new fucking powers. He can turn back time. Oh, who knew that? Wow. He shoots lasers out of his eyes. That's fantastic. Like he ends up being able to do a lot of stuff in the comic books and even in the movies that, that kind of, you're like, wait, he can do that too? When does this end? Does he, you know, is he just still discovering this shit?
1: It's kind of like the whole thing about why magic sometimes bothers you. It's like, well, if you're just going to discover that really convenient power,
0: then who cares? Right exactly you know it's like you run into a problem conveniently a new power pops out yeah so i i totally get that but it was just an interesting choice and maybe if anybody who's listening who knows a little bit more or hell a lot bit more about this than i do by all means weigh in because you know if if leopardon is like your favorite no doubt you've got some pretty severe reasoning as to why he would be an awesome robot to have if it was me You know, I would probably pick something like Jetfire from the Transformers. But part of that, of course, for me is because I like Transformers. I'm familiar with Jetfire. I know he had a kick-ass gun. He can fly. He can turn into a jet and go really fast. Uh, And I think it had missiles, too. And it was a fairly large robot when it transformed. But in comparison to a lot of these other robots, might not be the biggest. So I'll admit I don't have tactical sense in in looking at these robots and making a selection. What was what was a robot that you think you would pick?
1: Uh well, or
0: they or that you would want in the lineup.
1: I the easiest one for me to arrive at was actually just going which in a way that I thought was pretty simple, which would have been like Optimus Prime. I watched the Transformers and, you know, those movies came out and so that one was very easy for me to, to arrive at. But then I thought about it more, and I think I'm going to uh, change my answer to the Sentinels from
0: X-Men. You know, I, I got to think that Optimus Prime could probably take the Sentinels. I mean, think about it. I don't know, it's particularly the more recent movies. He's got the sword. He's got a huge freaking gun. His trailer turns into a, a gun turret. That he could use to like wipe down or mow down a field of baddies. But you, you got to remember, the
1: Sentinels are mutant hunter killer machines. That they, That's they right. have so to the be able to stop mut- any like they have to be able to at least attempt to defeat Wolverine.
0: Okay, but if if you're fighting other robots, those robots aren't mutants. True,
1: but it can withstand the the mutants to some degree. It can kill.
0: It okay. can kill some of the
1: mutants. It's it's. A, It's a pretty good robot. Okay, so maybe the idea here is that
0: it's adaptable, it's large, uh, it's powerful, and it's designed to find weak spots or flaws in dynamically different, in this case, mutants, but opponents. Yes. So if a mutant, you know, fires ice, it knows how to counter that. It, It... it knows how to sort of dynamically deal with. So that would be good because it could, you could potentially use that to weed out very quickly, the weak spots in your opponents, no matter how different those robots are. Exactly,
1: I think that I I could see that. I think that it was, uh, it's a smart way to go because the adaptability, it's not like you're getting a robot with, you know, 12, you know, secret moves and skills. It's, Kinda, sort of limitless.
0: Gotcha, gotcha. That's in, and and dynamic. So I imagine that it's it's weapon or its need to defeat. It totally depends on its opponent.
1: Yeah, it, I I think that it would uh, it would hold its own against other robots.
0: Yeah, I could see that. Okay, I could see that. That makes for a perfectly good argument. So we come to the end of the chapter. He's he's picked up his what was it twelve inch robot. And at this point, he comes out, he's popped out of this very happy because, well, let's face it, he just got through the second gate. And in the screen, what he sees before him after he has selected the robot is a pinnacle. It's actually a pentagram on a circle. In this case, the, this red pentagram, the points come out of the circle. Now, when I read this, I am familiar because of my deep, deep occult research background of the pinnacle and the circle. What I was not familiar with is what this is in reference to. Yeah,
1: I I did not know the reference at the time of reading this. Uh, I have since become very aware of it, and I will stop right there.
0: We'll both stop right there. And with that, we're going to shut down Chapter 26. This is Chris. And this is Aaron. Thanks for getting to the good part with us, and we will see you next chapter.